Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm Ryan Coonerty. Along with Debbie Cox Bolton of the New Deal, I'm lucky enough to be your co-host. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports the next generation of American leaders. From attorneys generals, to state senators, to mayors, to school board members, these are the people that are pushing policies and politics that will respond to climate change, rebuild our economy, address racial injustice, and restore our democracy. These are incredibly talented people who have dedicated themselves to public service when their country and their communities need it the most. Check out NewDealLeaders.org to see what I'm talking about. Today, I talk with Stanford Law Professor Michelle Wilde Anderson about her new book, The Fight to Save the Town, Reimagining Discarded America. It's an engaging book that led to an amazing conversation. Professor Anderson's thesis is one that will resonate with the listeners of this podcast. Local government matters. We need adequate public safety, libraries, water systems, and neighborhood investments to have thriving communities. She pinpoints what causes some places to be left behind and how focused community-led efforts can help. Listen to the podcast, then buy the book. Enjoy. Professor Michelle Wilde Anderson, welcome to An Honorable Profession. I'm so delighted to be here. Thanks, Ryan. This is a little departure from our normal guests on this podcast, but this is because I absolutely loved your new book, The Fight to Save the Town, where you looked at four communities that are symbolic of a lot of places that have fallen behind and are in desperate straits and are seeing some bottom-up response and maybe a little bit of glimmers of hope. And it's written with a you know deep policy, but also deeply personal. And so I can't recommend the book enough. But for those who haven't read the book, why don't you tell us a little bit about what drew you to this topics and why of all the issues out there in law these days, you chose these local cities. Great. Well, thank you so much for that generous introduction. I think the book really does stand for the general values that you stand for in this podcast and your TED Talk and just the community around you. Local governments matter a lot and they're taking on some of our hardest challenges. So I just want to reflect that back. It's so deeply true and really important that policymakers sort of even at the federal level, really internalize that. But to answer your more personal question, I want to tell a quick story about where some of this book comes from. Back when I had graduated from college, I was working as a grant writer in this extraordinary anti-poverty program in five really segregated cities in Connecticut, Hartford, Bridgeport, Waterbury, New London, and New Haven. And we were doing really hand-to-hand work for kids, for youth and families. And it was an extraordinarily effective program. But soon after I left, the federal government went through two big waves of tax cuts. And those trickled down to first to Connecticut and then to a lot of Connecticut's grantees, including this program. And also these federal tax cuts also resulted in the slashing of AmeriCorps funding. And so I watched as this kind of cascade of effects from federal tax policy sort of hit the ground at this organization, and it was forced to contract all of its programs out of every city except New Haven. 
And for those of your listeners who know Connecticut, they know New Haven's got Yale in it. It's got some real assets and, you know, deeper pockets within its tax base. And that allowed this organization, Leadership, Education, Athletics and Partnership to survive in New Haven, but not to survive in the others. So it was a really heartbreaking lesson to me of how when the money pulls back at the state or federal levels, local governments are sort of left with the resources in their tax bases. And that's the heart of what this book is about, is sort of the difference between local government tax bases and sort of this problem of local government inequality that we find ourselves in right now. Absolutely. And Hartford Mayor Luke Bronin is a New Deal leader and has spoken eloquently about how, you know, federal and state policies have really left places like Hartford behind. Yeah, no, he's been amazing. And his, yeah, they're doing really innovative land use policies or his wife, Sarah Bronin and others. I mean, that's a really good example of sort of the new generation leadership that you stand for. And that is so critical to really, you know, turning toward a tax base, accepting it as it is, and really trying to fight for reform internally. So for the folks who haven't had a chance to read the book yet, and I encourage everyone to do so, you pick four communities, and it's Josephine County, Oregon, Stockton, California, Detroit, Michigan, and Lawrence, Massachusetts. And you sort of tell their story and where the policies have gone wrong. Can you give an example of maybe what happened in Lawrence, Massachusetts, and why you think it's instructive for those of us who are trying to understand poverty and you know disenfranchisement and sort of the challenges that many communities face? Great. Yeah, I could talk about Lawrence all day, but I'll back up just before I jump into Lawrence and just say that the thing those four places have in common is that all of them are have a ton of poverty in their jurisdiction, very concentrated pockets of poverty, but also just a weak median income citywide. And then they're also broke. And they've been becoming sort of more and more broke over time from sort of chronic decline and the um, restructuring of working class employment, not just manufacturing, but also resource extraction and all kinds of other working class occupations. So they've been taking all of this poverty in their jurisdictions for a long time, and it's hitting their tax bases. But then the Great Recession also showed up and just slammed them. And as your listeners may or may not have heard, at the time of the Great Recession, that was the biggest wave of municipal fiscal collapse since the Great Depression. And the period after the recession has been referred to as the lost decade in local government revenues, basically 2010 to 2020, because the nature of the Great Recession was as a housing crash in ways that you definitely appreciate, and so many of your listeners do too, it hit local government revenues by resetting property tax assessments at a low point. And so it for that and other reasons, this last decade sort of has ensued after this big shock to these economies that were already struggling. So that's what these four places have in common. They all went through a bankruptcy or some kind of fiscal collapse that required state intervention. And as you've previewed, they all have these extraordinary networks of people really trying to face both the short-term fiscal and administrative challenges, but then most importantly, the really long-term deep effects of chronic poverty on their populations. And Lawrence 
is such a magnificent and inspiring city to me. It's a small mill town in Massachusetts. It was once nicknamed the Immigrant City because it was this portal for textile workers coming from all over the world, early 20th century. And it was the hub of the 1912 Bread and Roses strike, which was one of the most effective labor uprisings in American history which resulted in a 15% wage for textile workers all across New England. But fast forward to the demise of the New England textile industry as those jobs moved south and then left the United States entirely. And Lawrence transitioned to becoming a really important, it remained a manufacturing hub for a long time. It still has a lot of advanced manufacturing but Lawrence has lost a lot of its job base, but it has remained a really important home for low-wage workers. And today its nickname is the Latino City. It's more than 80% Latino, and they are the backbone workforce for so many of the regional low-income or low-wage service jobs of the Route 128 tech corridor around Andover and so forth. So Lawrence is this incredibly important labor. It always has been an important labor bedroom community and really has become a model for what I write about in the book is sort of this challenge of how you would get adult wages up today for that low-wage workforce when you can't use the same tactics they used in 1912, you know, you're not going to be able to form a union and strike against single giant employers because people are working all over the region as nannies, as janitors, as Uber Eats drivers, whatever it is, they're fueling this super diffuse economy. And so the techniques for getting their wages out of this incredible uh, poverty trap have to be fundamentally different than they were 100 years ago. Let me just take a moment to appreciate because I feel like so many economists and philanthropies and big companies tend to focus on regions for their academic studies. You really went right to a city level, right? A municipal level and you sort of talked about communities where citywide poverty, border-to-border poverty, and how many communities are in that space, and Lawrence is one of those places. Why do you think that level of analysis is helpful to understand what's going on in places like Lawrence and Stockton and other places? Yeah, you know, you intuitively get the answer to that question. And I bet many of your listeners don't, uh, do too, but academia doesn't. And so here's what's going on. So regions are not tax bases. That's such an obvious <laughs> statement for you and your audience. Uh, cities and counties are tax bases. And so for me and for you guys, you know, it's just intuitive that that unit of analysis matters a lot, right? That's the power to tax and spend and regulate. And that's the power of our politics is happening at that unit. But academia, for reasons that aren't wrong, you know, reasons that have to do with the availability of data and other things, academia has mostly focused on much smaller scales on neighborhoods, because for decades, we've known how neighborhoods drive outcomes in school attainment and the commission of violent crimes and so forth. So neighborhoods matter a ton. And there has always been really strong data available at the census track and block level. And then meanwhile, scaling up, we pay lots of attention to regions 
because they are these metropolitan engines of growth. And we have a lot of important economic indicators at that at the metro scale. So I think academia has done really important work on inequality among neighborhoods and really important work on the increasing inequality among regions. But my book is really focused on inequality among local governments themselves, whether they've got 2000 people and are crowded into a, you know, belt of local governments that are all equally tiny or whether they are, you know, a big city like Stockton, California, 325,000 people in the middle, you know, a capital of essentially a rural region. So big and small, you know, they've got a tax base and they've got to serve that population. So for the same reasons that I think your listeners attach to local governments and understand their importance, that's how I feel too. They matter in our lives and they matter in our opportunity for, you know, for our families, for our jobs, for our educations and so forth. I couldn't agree more. And, you know, I think you do an excellent job of talking about how important local government is that, you know, whether it's being able to call the police department or the fire department, being able to access just basic city services, have a library for kids to go after school. All those services are really essential to quality of life and economic opportunity. And when they go away, there's nothing to replace them, right? And things keep getting worse and worse and worse. And then some of these places, there's efforts, tax measures or other efforts to restore libraries or police or whatever the necessary services are, but those taxes keep getting rejected. And so those at the state or federal level get cynical and they say, well, these communities need to help themselves. We can't come in and help them. But I think you tell a really good story about why these communities find themselves in these sort of death spirals. Can you talk about that in the context of Josephine County, Oregon, or or whichever you know, community you, you want to focus on? Yeah, sure. Yeah, Josephine is a really good example of the kind of dynamic you're describing where the state constitution, this is totally outside of Josephine's control, but the state constitution has built in a whole series of tax controls that require voter approval of any increased levy of taxes at the local level. And Josephine's original rates were set at a time when it had this giant engine of income coming off of logging of old growth forests on federal property that's in Josephine's territory. So Josephine at the time through this larger statewide process got locked in at an artificially low rate of property taxes. And every time they want to do anything to support their local government, they have to go back to the voters for increased funding. And, you know, one story that you could tell about a place like Josephine is, look, they've had, you know, they had nine levies in a row that voters rejected. But it's interesting when you actually look at the numbers, you realize, yeah, 53% of voters rejected that levy, for instance. But look, 47% of them didn't, but they get outvoted by this larger state legal system that requires the sheriff to, you know, go forward for an election every time he wants, you know, more than one patrol officer working on a weekend. This is, by the way, a county that is the size of Rhode Island. So this is a giant, giant territory. And, you know, for the county administration anyway, and it is 
the kind of place that has faced a wipeout of local government services, including 911 emergency dispatch and libraries, as you say, that render its local government service profile just it would be unrecognizable to, you know, your community in Santa Cruz or mine in San Francisco or, you know, more prosperous places. So it had a real wipeout of its services. But in order to address that, it had to keep going back to the voters. And so the story I tell is how you run a grassroots pro-tax campaign in a place that is very, very conservative. So it's a kind of curiosity slash challenge slash inspiration that comes out of Josephine of sort of how you build political will for new taxes in a place that is quite anti-government at this point in its history. Yeah. I mean, it's an incredibly inspiring story because you have a library director and they literally can't keep the lights on. Like, so (laughs) a library in the dark is a terrible metaphor for where the community finds itself. And at one point, they're talking about using flashlights, handing out flashlights so people can read by flashlight. But instead, they decide to focus on reaching out to their neighbors and making calls. And they are able to to gain the support of their community. But it's so telling because local government fails because it needs resources. But then when it needs resources, people look at local government and they see failure. And so it becomes you're just caught in this in this never-ending sort of, you know, spiral where you can't get out of it until you, until you totally change the conversation or, and the investment. Right. Yeah. And, you know, that moment in the Josephine County Library where they needed flashlights, that was after it was being run by a nonprofit. It wasn't even a public library anymore. And, you know, that's the kind of story that, you know, you can find in a lot of smaller towns and really broke places across the country is, you know, losing a public library entirely. And just to put a fine point on that, you know, I work at Stanford, which is people may recognize is located in Palo Alto and Palo Alto invested $75 million in a big library overhaul of its system that allowed these, you know, cutting edge, beautiful public spaces and equipment and programming for kids and Wi-Fi and so forth. And across that same period of these investments in Palo Alto, Stockton, which is about an hour and a half away and is a big workforce for the hospitals and my university and food service and so forth in Silicon Valley, was closing its branch library in the poorest neighborhood and retracting its main branch hours down to just a nub. And yet in a poor area, libraries are an access, you know, maybe the only access point to books, to Wi-Fi, to computer terminals, to, you know, safe after school spaces and so forth. So they're arguably much more important in a really low income area than they are in, you know, very high income area where people have those things privately available to them in their personal homes. So that's the library piece. But also embedded in your question, Ryan, is this, you know, vicious spiral thing. And that is so important. I mean, at some level, this book is nothing more than 
a description of how you take a place that is in a downward spiral of decline, of faithlessness in government, of frustration with disappointing leaders, and just a sense the government just is useless and doesn't deserve additional resources, how you take that spiral and you shift it toward a story of cooperation and you know mutual investment of sort of how do we believe in the people here, the children here, the future of our people. And, you know, the art of doing that, that's really what I was after in this book of sort of how to find the people who are figuring out how to work together to sort of shift the momentum forward. Absolutely. And I, it comes across so clearly in the book. Can you talk, I mean, we have listeners who are at the state and federal level, and who may want to intervene in places like this, but have seen communities in this death spiral. What's your advice from a policy or politics perspective with engaging with these communities to help them and help the community leaders, you know, make that intervention to turn the tide? Yeah, I mean, I'm going to come to that in one second, but let me just back up and say part of the reason that I think state politics have backed out of really focusing on some of these problems and really investing in very poor places is that our larger public discourse just pathologizes poor cities to no end. I mean, journalists and movies and so forth paint them as these kind of hell holes where bullets are flying and the politicians are corrupt and, you know, this place is just hopeless and helpless. And once that story kind of embeds in our consciousness, I think politicians have trouble investing in poor places because there's such a strong narrative of don't throw good money after bad. You know, it's a kind of tough love narrative that what these places need is a bunch of suitcases for everybody to move somewhere else. But meanwhile, you know, those communities have to continue governing. I mean, this is, again, like a problem that local politicians understand in their bones you know, they have to keep going to work every single day and trying to serve the public. And so I think that fixing state and federal politics starts with recognizing that there are people on the ground that are showing up that are trying to do the work, and they have to be successful at some point, because otherwise, these poverty traps form in ways that lead to intergenerational poverty, drug distribution networks, you know, addiction crises, these larger problems that your listeners are very familiar with. So to me, the shift in this vicious to virtuous cycle comes in part from believing in the people there and really helping them work with one another. And I think of this as mutual aid among institutions. So you know, in the pandemic, we talked so much about individual mutual aid, and that's critical. And poor communities have had higher levels of individual mutual aid for, you know, generations. But you need mutual aid at the institutional level, too, where, you know, nonprofits know how to work together, they know their leadership, you know, the government is working effectively with nonprofits and private businesses and churches and so forth. And you need to like, sew that social fabric back together, so that people can do things together and stop competing against each other in destructive ways, stop, you know, villainizing each other and really kind of move things forward. So some of the most 
effective federal programs that I got to watch in the course of reporting this book really invested in those networks, like the Promise Zone effort that really invested in some grants at the front end that really supported people coming to the table together and really starting to coordinate around joint goals and starting to get in Stockton. I got to watch some of these Promise Zone meetings where you get 30 people in a room, all of whom are from different department, you know, code enforcement, the police department, all kinds of youth programs and so forth, asking questions like, what were the homicide rates last month? You know, what do we have on our table to get them down this month? And you get those people, you know, talking to each other, sort of rolling up their sleeves in coordinated answers to some of these really urgent humanitarian problems. I like that idea of sort of uh, coalition building at the institutional level to support the people on the ground doing the work. In my experience, that's where almost all the change gets made. I do want to note that all these cities are in blue or bluish states. And you make a note that the problems for poor cities in red states are very different. And I think we're looking at Jackson, Mississippi right now and the water crisis there as an example. Do you want to explain the the dynamics? Because I think there is an important distinction between where your poor city is located and the opportunities that you'll have to improve it. It's amazing that you mentioned Jackson, because that was actually part of this book. And I made the choice to drop the book down to blue and purple states for, you know, for the reason that, and as you know, well, local governments are creatures of state law, and they derive so many limits on their authority from state law. And, you know, in most so-called, quote unquote, red states in the country, and Mississippi is, you know, at the very top of this list, local governments have so many constraints on what they can do, not just taxation, but even service provision, involvement in civic problem solving and so forth. So they have real limitations to their staff and their scope of work. And so I came to really think that the problem of local government leadership in so-called red states had to be slightly different than the kinds of solutions that you could generate in blue or purple states where the problem really wasn't a matter of law and local government authority so much as a problem of politics of just there's no political will to keep, you know, investing money in Stockton if in California if people believe that, you know, it's just this dysfunctional backwater of urban violence and I think that story about Stockton is so unfair to the breathtaking history of that city. Stockton, by the way, is the most diverse city in America. And so as we think about sort of the problems of desegregation, of refugee integration, of immigrant diversity, you know, Stockton should be a place that we learn from and invest in. And so I feel like in California, you can summon the political will to sort of re-engage in a city like Stockton in a way that Jackson and Mississippi's antagonism is too deep and too polarized right now. But I'm coming back. I mean, the next round of this research is in Arkansas, Mississippi, and I have an eye on a couple of other places in the South. So it's not to say that they're not part of this conversation. It's just legally, I think, a little bit different. No, I think it is fundamentally. I mean, you when we talk to our, you know, the mayors and 
state legislators in these red states, the level to which the states tie their hands politically from a policy perspective is breathtaking, especially when you consider that the party will often talk about why they need states' rights and local control in one context, but then quickly take it away in almost every other context that it matters once they're in power. Right. And, you know, that's where we are historically. We're at this moment where a lot of the solutions, quote unquote, to urban problems, whether it's a corruption scandal or a, you know, predatory form of local government, like the fines and fees revelations in the suburbs outside of St. Louis, when you get these answers from the state level that just, you know, cinch the power tighter and just take more power back from local governments, but do nothing to solve the underlying concentrations of poverty on the ground, you just make these problems worse. So I think, unfortunately, that's what we've seen. I mean, Missouri, to me, is exhibit A of this, but, you know, where things get really bad and the state's answer is just to pull the reins back even tighter. Can you make the case for a Stanford law student who may have, you know, come from one of these communities, worked hard, found you know, opportunities elsewhere, and is now maybe has a glimmer of maybe I should go back and help that community and be that one of the change agents that pulls institutions together to solve and communities together to solve problems. Make the case that that would be a good use of their time, skill, and talents. Oh, that's such an awesome question. I feel like I get to do that in my classes. And so I get to do it now on your podcast. I think I'm going to answer it rooted in Lawrence, since you asked about that city earlier. But you know, if your listeners can picture Lawrence, it's right at the northern tip of Massachusetts. And so it's a, it's one of the last really big cities before New England. And so it's become a kind of focal point for the opioid crisis in New England and former President Trump blamed Lawrence for drug dealing and the governors of New Hampshire and Maine did the same sort of blaming Lawrence for the larger drug crisis. And meanwhile, on the ground, this is all coming back to your question, I promise, right? (laughs) But meanwhile, if you picture, you know, you've got this mayor and this community, school systems, you know, the police department, all these actors on the ground that have this real crisis really boiling over. So the New England drug crisis is really in the parks and on the streets of Lawrence, resulting in higher levels of gun violence and an increasing addiction problem among Lawrence's own residents, but also encampments that are, you know, full of New Hampshire runaways and others. So Lawrence has this real problem on the ground. And meanwhile, as we all know, the opioid crisis is being driven by forces way beyond Lawrence's control, right? We've got, you know, propaganda and false advertising about the prescription, prescription of opioids for pain. We've got, you know, international drug trafficking. And then, you know, neighbors in New Hampshire and Maine that were under investing in rehab and addiction services for their own people. And so Lawrence's mayor at the time of, you know, really the peak opioid crisis and street violence caused by it in Lawrence was really discouraged about, you know, all of these problems. But, you know, and he made this comment that I love, and I think your local government listeners will appreciate. He said, 
When New Hampshire doesn't fix a pothole that many of our workers commute across to reach jobs in Lawrence, sometimes we just send public works out there to just fix it ourselves. You know, it's across the state line, but so what? It's annoying our residents or our workforce. We'll just fix it. He said in a big regional crisis, we can't do that. I can't provide, you know, residential rehab for the crisis raging in New Hampshire. But he said, you know, you can't give up. Meanwhile, I've got this problem on the ground. And so this huge network of people in Lawrence was working not only on the adult skills and living wage issues that I was alluding to earlier, but also redeveloping, recapturing, so closing a lot of these back alleys and old rail yards that were being used to shoot drugs. There was an amazing community movement that was growing up around reclaiming the local parks. And just one thing after another, the bottom line is that Mayor Rivera and a big network of nonprofits and so forth did whatever they could. And I love the whiteboard message that Mayor Rivera had in his conference room, his mayoral conference room, where he brings constituents and so forth. And it was there across his whole mayoral administration. And it said at the top, do something. Can we do it today? And that was in blue. And then in red, it said, stop explaining the problem, start explaining the solution. And then last at the bottom, his wife in green had written, keep your head up. And to me, like, that's why you go into local politics, like you go into local politics to solve the problems that you can and to show up every single day and keep doing it. And you do need your wife to write, keep your head up sometimes because it's <laughs> really hard work. There's all kinds of things beyond your control. But, you know, as you capture so proudly on this podcast and with your career, it's proud work and you know, there are more people who love and appreciate Dan Rivera in Lawrence and, you know, many others in that town than most of us could ever wish for. So it's an incredibly rewarding way to serve the larger community and its urgent needs. I couldn't agree more. I also loved in that story that it was written in ink that couldn't be erased. So, uh, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> so even on days when a constituent or even the mayor wants to erase it, you can't. That was, uh, I'd like... Thought that was a good metaphor for serving a local government these days. Yeah, I hope it's still up there. <laughs> <laughs> so in a final question, what's next for you? Where is your research and advocacy going to take you? You hinted at it a little bit, but uh, how are we going to be having a new book out in a couple years? And what do you see out there? Yeah, you know, I'm in the midst of figuring all of that out, but I have projects on my desk right now related to education in California, a project related to this funding crisis for local governments I was describing in Missouri, and then also the work in Jackson. And I'm looking at a few other communities in the South where there are just dramatic and long overdue environmental investments that are critical for you know, at some level, environmental investments and infrastructure investments are an anti-poverty measure. We can see that in Jackson right now, and the Flint water crisis really brought that home. So I'm starting to work specifically on the fight to save the town elements that really deal with urgent environmental adaptation to climate change and really how to bring that home to families and to local residents as an investment in jobs. 
I love it. And you're exactly right. I mean, we're seeing it and we're only going to see more of it. And so until we help these communities build up resilience in their infrastructure and their community institutions, we're going to see enormous disruptions. And that is the urgent need as we face a more and more difficult climate. Well, for all the listeners, the book is The Fight to Save the Town by Michelle Wilde Anderson. Buy it at your local independent bookstore in your local community so that you can support your local government with a few pennies of sales tax as you read this important story. But thank you for joining us today, and thank you for recognizing the role that local government plays in making communities better places. Oh, right back at you. I just want to quote you back. Thank you for recognizing the role that local governments play in making communities better places. We can all get on that same page. (laughs) Well, thank you. We're facing our own test of our climate today on the coast of California as temperatures climb. And so stay cool and keep advocating. And you have a network of new dealers who are ready to help at any time. Awesome. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you. Thanks for listening to An Honorable Profession. Please subscribe to hear more amazing leaders and keep asking your elected officials to be honorable. Boots Road Group produces podcasts. I'm Ryan Coonerty, and because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars were used in the making of this podcast.